Well, it's a great uh, privilege for me to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We are in verse 22, and um, we are looking at the fruit of love. We started last Lord's Day with part one, and now we finish this little mini-series on love uh, with part two this morning. Um, I want to open our study with a great truth about the way that we Christians love in light of the way God loves that is both exciting and also hard to fathom. Scripture's clear that God's love, God loves with a great intensity as he does everything. After all, he's God, and everything that he does, he does perfectly and completely and fully and with great intensity. He, that, become, that became obvious, I think, in what is arguably the greatest act of God's love throughout history, and that would be the giving of his son. We'll have more to say about that next Lord's Day. And in doing so, he saved a people for himself. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 32, that he continues to love us with great intensity. This is how he puts it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up uh, over for us all, how will he not also with, with him freely give us all things? Rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is he will give us freely. And that's the exciting part. And the first truth that we established, if we remember, biblical love imitates the way God loves. This is what biblical love is. But it's also the part that's hard for us to fathom as well. Christians cannot possibly love to the same degree as God. Can they? Well, no, not to the same degree. But according to the second truth that we established, they can with the same kind of love. Uh, receiving God's love is prerequisite to practicing it. That's what we said as well. We developed that. We should practice it as intensely as possible and to practice it accurately as possible as well, which is what our third truth established last time. Biblical love loves uh, God first and neighbor second. Um, now, those are wonderful truths, and I hope to impress you with uh, the rest of the nature of God's love this morning with four more. So here we go. Very practical stuff. The first one I'll spend a little bit more time on because I think it, it really is the, um, the most common or it addresses the most common kinds of problems that we Christians have to which love is the solution. It goes like this. Biblical love is first in action before it's a feeling. It is first in action before it is a feeling. It's time to demonstrate what we said earlier about the fruit of the Spirit being actions first before they are feelings, and we do it with love. It's an important truth. And I might begin by pointing out that the New Testament speaks of God's love in terms of giving, always in terms of giving. John 3.16, God so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ gave himself for us in death. Galatians 2.20, God so loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus says in John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, I don't believe that love is only an action, of course, certainly not. There is an undeniable feeling 
that accompanies biblical love. We've all felt it, of course. Whether it's a brotherly emotion for a friend, an intimate and romantic love for a spouse, or a, a deep feeling of care and protection for a child, these various love, loving feelings are obviously part of biblical love. What I'm arguing is that biblical love is first an action before it is an emotion. And it's specifically an act of giving. Wayne Mack, well-known, reliable name in the biblical counseling world, writes this, quote, Love is worthless. Indeed, it is non-existent unless it's manifest in concrete, specific ways, end quote. And he's right. To prove this to you, we need to build one truth upon another. And you need to think with me. This is one of those thinking messages, all right? Not that, not that we don't appeal to the intellect, but this one you especially have to think through, and it's so very important. I know you're going to be very excited about what you hear. So let's begin with a foundational truth that's true to our experience. All right, true to our experience, everything we do and feel is certainly the byproduct of our thinking in our hearts. Everything. Whatever you, whatever you feel, whatever you do, your feeling and your actions are the byproduct of your thinking in your heart. What, what I mean is that we have to think a certain we have to think a certain way about somebody before we can feel anything towards him. That's what I mean. We cannot just have, for example, a loving feeling about someone outside of our thought process. Now, let's conduct a simple experiment to prove this, all right? Let me introduce you to Mr. Wallace. Mr. Wallace is a middle-aged man who owns his own business and lives in a humble split level with his, three, with his wife and three kids. When I say go, I want you to love him intensely, like you've never loved anyone else in your life. Okay? Ready? Go. How are you doing? Do you need more time? Of course not. It's impossible to work up a loving feeling for Mr. Wallace. Why? Why? Because you know nothing about Mr. Wallace that would cause such intense brotherly affections or emotions. There is a thought process that must take place first. Feelings that we have for others are not created in a vacuum, beloved, but in a context in our hearts. Well, what about love at first sight? Well, a woman sees a handsome man and immediately falls head over heels in love with him, and she knows nothing about him. So what about that? Mm -hmm. Well, just to be accurate, this is not love but infatuation. But it's still a feeling, I would grant you that, and I would argue that it is still the byproduct of what she knows to be true about the opposite sex. In other words, certain characteristics of this man that she is able to discern with her intellect from an initial brief meeting fits her preconceived ideas of the type of man that she prefers, and that stirs up certain feelings for him. I say again, feelings are manufactured in our hearts by our thinking. Let me illustrate it another way. A large lion walks into this room. If that happens, you would be instantly frightened. Why? You never saw this lion before. It never did anything to you. So why frighten? Well, because of what you know to be true about lions. In this context, fear is God's built-in alarm system that is meant to protect you. 
your mind tells you that something ferocious with lots of sharp teeth is going to eat you if you don't get out. And if it were possible to bring in a person or bring up a person in complete isolation, think about this, without any knowledge of an animal predator with big teeth and sharp claws, or even what a lion is, that were possible, he would not experience the same emotion when encountering the lion. It's likely that he would want to play with it, take a selfie with it. Do we not see the principle working out with toddlers? Two-year-old who knows nothing about electric stoves is likely to is likely to burn his hand on one before he has a proper fear of it. Which is why we have to keep our eye on them all the time. They know they don't know enough of what to fear most of the time. Well, back to love. If we, as image bearers of Jesus Christ, are going to experience brotherly affection for someone, there is an initial thought process that has to take place first. Emotions are the byproduct of my thinking in my heart. Got it. So what if my knowledge of someone is not conducive to loving feelings? What if I learn something about this someone and that, and that knowledge tells me that this someone is a wicked person? Wouldn't my knowledge of him then lead me to dislike him or worse, hate him? Well, it certainly would for unbelievers, but not for Christians. Really? What makes the difference? We as Christians, you see, may have knowledge of someone that would warrant our hateful thoughts, but there is another more important knowledge that we also have that takes priority in every context and must rule, and that is special revelation. That body of knowledge tells us that we must love this person regardless of what we know and how bad we feel about him. Well, how on earth am I supposed to start feeling love for this guy on command? I mean, that's like jamming my car into reverse while cruising at 60 miles an hour. Well, the answer is you cannot, because love is first an action. So you need to start by showing him love in unmistakable, concrete ways. I want to demonstrate this for you and use a worst-case scenario that Jesus himself brings up in his Sermon on the Mount. I'm talking about an enemy, a personal enemy whom we know is bad news and out for our demise. That's as bad as it gets. Maybe you have one or more. We address this worst-case scenario with a formula that I want to give you right now. This is very important. I haven't published it, so you need to write it down. Very important. It's, it's easy. You need to know it if you're going to love your enemy and anyone who is less than an enemy. The formula is not complicated. It goes like this. Are you ready? Start with God's absolute truth. Believe that it is the best possible option in any situation. Do what it says regardless of how you feel and you will achieve the right corresponding emotion. One more time. Start with God's absolute truth. Believe that it is the best possible option in any situation. Do what it says regardless of how you feel, 
and you will achieve the right corresponding emotion. Said another way, in the absence of loving feeling for someone, or in hopes of changing a sinful, hateful feeling, you must do what you believe to be right from God's word. That's a little easier. Do what you believe to be right from God's word. When, you, when you're in a position where, where you have no brotherly love for a person and even harbor intense negative feelings bordering on hate against this person because of what you know about him, it's at that point that you need to turn to God's truth, which takes precedence, and learn how to think and act properly in this situation, that we and you and we, all of us, might eventually feel properly about our enemy. Do you see how this principle works? Obedience to God's word in this case will not only counter our wrong thoughts and our bad feelings, it will change them. Now let's get a working knowledge of this formula then with the case study. All right, I'm going to give you a case study. This is the case study of the enemy employee. You work with Joe. He hates Christians, all Christians, and you happen to be in his sights. He resents your work ethic because it shows him up. Always on time with your projects, always thorough, always producing reliable work, always receiving praise from the boss. Not to mention always at work early, never leaving one minute before the appointed time, never sneaking extra breaks like the rest or taking advantage of the lunch hour. Well, he cannot compete with that. And so he is out to make your life miserable. He gossips about you, spreads lies about you, tries to make you look bad, speaks harshly to you, whatever he can do to ruin your day. And if you're honest, you're having a hard time with this. It wears on you. And pretty soon, you no longer look forward to going to work. It becomes a fearful place, a drudgery. Your blood pressure goes up every time Joe, Joe walks into the room. You start wasting time figuring out how you can avoid him. And all this makes you increasingly upset, and now a root of bitterness begins to grow inside of you, and you begin to nurture contempt for Joe. Murderous thoughts. You also found out that Joe's even worse outside the office. Just a grade A wicked person. Now, it'd be impossible in the midst of this context to instantly work up a brotherly love for Joe in light of all that you know about him and all the bad feelings that you're harboring against him, right? Impossible. So how do you change this around to where you can show him the love of Christ when you don't feel like it? The first place to begin, of course, is with repentance. Now, if you have sinned in your heart against this guy, had murderous thoughts, killed him many times over there, you need to ask God for forgiveness. Then you can go forward. You ask God for forgiveness. And by the way, only God, in this case, since this guy knows nothing of what takes place in your heart. All right? Now, once that's out of the way, according to our formula, you must do uh, you must do what you know from God's word to be right 
And that is to start giving yourself to Joe in all kinds of ways. Love is first an action before it is a feeling. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Which, when interpreted, means wherever you spend your free time, that's where your passion is. So in order to develop a passion for Joe, you have to start spending time giving of yourself to him first. But what does that look like in this context? Well, you would certainly give of your time, even part of your thought life, to pray for Joe, praying that he would come to a saving knowledge of Christ and know what it means to receive God's saving grace. You would also give of your en energies by serving Joe. You, you're off to get the boss his morning coffee, and you ask Joe if you could get him a cup. You purposely look for Joe at the beginning of the day to greet him and at the end of the day to say goodbye. You might offer any assistance. You offer to share some of his workload when the office gets busy and he's feeling swamped. After all, you're both on the same team. And when the boss asks for your recommendation to give Joe a promotion, you speak of Joe's strengths and good points as an employee. You return good for evil to Joe. You turn his wrath away with a gentle answer. The point is this. The more you give yourself to this enemy, the more you make him your project. And the more time you spend on this project, the more passionate you become. Soon your thinking changes. You know he's an unbeliever duped by Satan. And he cannot, you cannot expect him to behave like a Christian. So you begin to pity him. You want to see him saved. You want to help him know the Savior. And the more you spend your thoughts and your energies on this person, the more your thinking changes and begins to transform those intensely negative feelings for Joe into pity. He's not so, so much an enemy as he is a hopeless sinner enslaved in a pathetic state of depravity. And as you continue to put yourself up for Joe, your pity then transforms into a brotherly emotion. You tell a fellow member of your church who's been praying for your struggle at work, you know, Joe's not so bad. I mean, his bark is worse than his bite. He's, he's very much a product of his upbringing, a bad upbringing. And that the fact that he's wicked, not very likable, hates Christians, goes out of his way to offend me, well, isn't that par for the course? I've actually come to expect that from non-Christians. He's deceived by the, the evil one. He needs to be saved to experience the love of Christ firsthand. I honestly care that he comes to know Christ. I take nothing he throws at me personally anymore. And I look forward to going to work, see how else I can show love to my project. Now, this case study represents the worst-case scenario. But the principle of love works on every level of interpersonal relationships. What I mean by this is, if we're called to love our enemies, we have no excuse not to love anyone who is less than an enemy, right? <laughs> so let's take another example that might be closer to home for all of us, or most of us. 
I have counseled plenty of Christian spouses who have, shall we say, lost that loving feeling for each other. Oh, it happens more often than you think. The way to get it back is not to sit in a chair and work real hard and try and get a feeling back. No, it is to give yourself to your spouse in all kinds of ways. Eventually, the more you think of your spouse as your treasure, spend more and more and more time practicing concrete acts of love, eventually, as with the case with Joe, eventually loving feelings will be rekindled. It has to be that way, beloved. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart is also. Now, I want to confirm this formula first by human experience and then by Scripture, okay? First by human experience and then by Scripture. I'll start with human experience. We have all experienced this principle of thinking, producing behavior, producing emotions in other contexts. Oh, yes, you have a lot of times. You've been in situations before where you forced yourself to do something you know you were not looking forward to do because you knew it was the right thing to do, right? And you found that when you did override your feelings to the contrary and carried out whatever it was, in the end, you were so glad that you had forced yourself. Just ringing some bells. It was the right thing to do. And now you're experiencing this positive consequence of your actions. This experience is undeniable. It is a central part of life even for unbelievers. You've experienced it if you work out. Because you have faced those times when you don't really feel like getting up and working out. But you force yourself to and you're so glad at the end of the day that you did. Or maybe it's cleaning that part of the house that's haunted you for weeks. Or tackling a mountain of paperwork that has reached new record heights. When you tackle it reluctantly, your reluctance dissipates. And the more rooms you clean, the happier you become. And the pile of paperwork goes down. And as it goes down, your spirits go up. Right? This is undeniable. After a routine teeth cleaning, the dentist informs you that you are going to need a root canal soon. You fear, you fear more than, more than, than teeth cleaning the root canal. So what do you do? Well, you force yourself to brave the pinch of the needle, the sound of the drill, the off chance that he might hit a nerve, Because you know in the end it is the right thing to do. It'll prevent worse problems and intense pain down the road. If I want to foster a brotherly emotion for my neighbor, no matter who he may be, the principle is know how to give myself to that person. Then do it, regardless of how I feel about him. The end result will be the right corresponding emotion. Once I feel brotherly love that I should have for my neighbor, well, then and only then does that feeling motivate me to keep acting on love. At at this point, actions and feelings are part of a cycle. The right and proper loving emotion that is created by the initial loving acts motivates me to keep on acting that way. 
Now that's human experience. Here's the biblical precedent that confirms this experience, all right? And of course, that's the most important. We gotta go to the word, make sure it's there. And it is. For this, we go to Genesis 4, 7, which we mentioned briefly in our introduction on this mini-series of the fruit of the Spirit. You remember the context. Cain was jealous of his brother, Abel, and because God accepted Abel and rejected him, which showed Abel's heart was right before God and Cain's heart wasn't. Consequently, and I, I just need to slip this in, this is a matter of this is a matter of being precise. I just want us to, to understand the context a little better. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. Mis but many mistakenly think that Cain that God rejected Cain's sacrifice because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. I hear this all the time. There are two reasons why that is not true. The first is the Hebrew word for Cain's sacrifice that Moses uses is minka, which is an acceptable sacrifice in the Levitical code. Second, the Hebrew grammar puts the person before the sacrifice. So God had regard for Abel, therefore his sacrifice. Had no regard for Cain, therefore no regard for his sacrifice. You see how that works? God will reject even legitimate sacrifices when offered by a double-minded heart. Oh, yes. Be that as it may, Cain's anger grew hot. And just before it got the better of him, God intervenes with hope. God counsels Cain. The hope is in the first part of verse 7. And here's the formula. If you do what is right, will your not face, will your will not your face be cheerful? Now what does God mean by doing well or doing what is right? We're not told. But we have to believe that it is what God it's what God said. In other words, we have to assume that a fair a fair bit of catechizing had taken place in the Adams household. And that Cain knew the godly response that he needed to give in this situation. And what we know from the rest of Scripture, that response would surely have included repenting for approaching God with a sinful heart and then asking God for forgiveness for hating his brother in his heart and then worshiping God with a pure heart of devotion and loyalty. If he did that, God would accept him and he would feel better. See where the joy comes from? Do what you know to be right, and you will feel better. The NASB says cheerful, interestingly enough. Trusting what he knew to be right, that is God's way, as the best option in this situation, and then carrying it out with an, with an informed heart, even while in his depressed state, he would be glad he did. Beloved, this is how human beings are wired. What is different for us Christians is that our source of knowledge is different. God's truth, his special revelation, takes precedence and is what must inform our thinking. When it does, we carry it out regardless of 
any contrary feelings and any contrary thoughts about our enemy. And as we apply God's truth to our very situation, it transforms our thinking and our feelings. We call this the renewing of the mind. In the area of love and interpersonal relationships, we read in 1 Peter 2.22, Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters, I'm just stopping there because that's the part I want you to see. Obedience to the truth purifies and produces sincere love for the body. Well, that's number four. There was a lot there, but very practical. Let's hasten on to number five. Biblical love is commanded and therefore can be learned. Hmm. If it's true that biblical love cannot be reduced to just a feeling and it is first an action, then it can be commanded. And anything commanded by God can be learned. After all, Jesus does command us to love God and love neighbor, including our enemies. If love is commanded, it can be learned. This truth also has shocked many that I've spoken with who have difficulty in relationships, but once they accept it, they find it to be more comforting than, than shocking. The reason for the initial shock, I think, is because the influence of the world has, has been uh, um, rather profound on the thinking of many in the church with regard to love. The love that, the, that they grew up with knowing and experiencing and practicing is worldly. It's not biblical. And the world does not believe for a minute that love is something that can be commanded. How silly is that? Think for a moment about the non-Christian woman who is told that love is commanded. She says, you cannot expect me to decide to love someone. Love has to come, well, naturally, by itself. She's talking, of course, only about loving feelings. To the world, love is nothing more, of course, than a feeling and therefore elusive. It's unstable, as unstable as it is stable, in fact. Not so with God's love. We can learn to love someone because God, God's love is first in action. God commands all of those who have been born again and experienced his saving love to love neighbor, including enemies, in a way that would be pleasing to him. And every believer can love this way. If he doesn't know how, he can learn. And that is the beauty of God's commands and the hope for all of us. We can learn them. Again, Dr. Wayne Mack, in his comments on Titus 2, 3, and 4, says this about biblical love. Quote, love can be taught. Love does not just happen. People do not fall in love, quote, unquote. They may fall into infatuation or warm, tender feelings, but this warm, tender feeling is not to be equated with biblical love. Biblical love may involve a warm, tender feeling at times, but there is much more to it than that. Since love can be taught and learned, it involves the mind and the intellect and not just the emotions. If a person says he or she does not love someone, he can learn to love the, the other person if he really wants to, end quote. This is such a, a message of hope to, to many Christians who have difficulty loving others. I received a call from a local pastor one day years ago, many 
many years ago. I was a young pastor then. And uh, this couple was on the brink of divorce. The problem? The wife claimed that she did not love her husband and was planning on leaving him. Both professed Christ, but the wife proved in the end that she really wasn't a Christian. She eventually divorced her husband and shacked up with some unbelieving guy. Now, as I sat across the table from them and listened to her tell me with a rather odd sense of satisfaction that she had figured out the reason for all their marital problems over the six years that they had been married. Yes, she was so excited. She never loved him to begin with. Problem solved. She said, oh, don't get me wrong, Pastor. My husband, he's the nicest guy, great father to my kids, works hard to support the family. I just don't love him that way. And my response is one of hope. As I rejoiced with her, that she could put her finger on the problem. And when I told her the good news that love is something that God commands of us, which means that we can learn how to love, and I would be happy to teach her, she was highly offended, stormed out of the room, leaving her husband sitting there in an emotional heap. What can Christian husbands and wives do in this situation? Divorce? Certainly not. Are they stuck with this off, in this awful existence? No. No, they, they shouldn't tolerate it either. What hope can we give them in this situation? We can assure them that love can be learned and that we are ready to teach them. And the first step in biblical love is for each of them to learn how to put himself and herself out for the other. If we can nurture loving loving emotions for an enemy by giving of ourselves to him in all kinds of ways, how much more those we care about? Oh, the more, so much more. And the more and the longer you put yourself out in concrete acts of love for your spouse, the quicker you nurture the right and corresponding emotions. And back comes that loving feeling. Love is both feeling and action, but it is first an action and it is specifically giving classic passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13 supports this. Paul personifies love, as you know. Love is this, love is that. And then Paul speaks of it in terms of, a dis of disposition and actions. Number six, biblical love can be practiced only in the truth. Biblical love can be practiced only in the truth. You can only love in the truth. See, love is defined by God's word, and many Christians seem to bypass this part, defining love without the truth. Now, when they do that, what they practice is not biblical love. It is a counterfeit. And you can only know love in the truth. And we hinted at this when we made the point that we must love God in order to know how to love others properly, if you remember. Here's where we fill that out. Very simply, if God is our first love, then we will love our neighbor the way God wants us to. And God tells us exactly how he would have us love others in this world. He tells us how to love our wives, our neighbors, our children, and so on. And when you're faced with the opportunity to show love to someone, you should ask yourself at that very moment, how does my first love want me to love this person? 
That's a good check, since we're so prone to follow our emotions against the truth of God's word and rationalize a wrong display of love. Once that, one that really pleases people rather than God. Even in the church, Christians will not love others the way God calls them to for fear of upsetting someone or maybe ruining long-standing relationships, either with family or friends. Happens all the time. So they will give in to them and love them the way they want to be loved at, at the expense of God's truth. There have been several occasions throughout my years of serving as a pastor, both on an individual level as well as on a church-wide level, when I was accused of not being loving because I responded to someone's sinful behavior in a biblical way, but nevertheless in a way that some members did not like. It's amazing how Christians can talk a good talk, claim devotion to the Word of God, and yet disregard it or do some fanciful reinterpreting when they find themselves in situations where God's word would have them confront family or close friends. In fact, they would even repudiate many of the means by which God calls them to love others. Consider consider these means which they would think to be unloving. Rebuke is one of them. Oh, that's a dirty word today. And yet Jesus calls us to rebuke those who have caused offense. Closely related is correction. Yet Paul says that it is a necessary part of one another, and many don't want to be told how to live their Christian lives, even though they need direction, wisdom, and discernment. Another is church discipline, which is certainly considered to be cruel and unusual punishment. Churchgoers and many pastors will totally ignore Jesus' teaching on this. This is why membership has fallen out of vogue, by the way, in many churches today. It implies an accountability that many don't like and they don't want. Yet Hebrews 13, 17 is very clear. Obey your leaders and submit to them. He's talking about leaders in the church. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which is equally clear. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Only God's truth defines love for us and shows us how to practice it. Well, we could say more, but let's hasten on to the last and final uh, truth, and that is that biblical love instills confidence in us. I love this one. It's a wonderful truth that I'll close our time out with. It has two sides to it, two sides. The first of which is God's love for us, specifically his saving love. And this love casts out all fear of God's judicial judgment. Listen to 1 John 4.18. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as as he is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. You have been perfected in love in the love of Christ. John says that when one has received God's saving love, 
He has no good reason to fear condemnation anymore. It is not going to ever happen. That's gone. It's over with. God's perfect love casts out any fear that we may have of this future judgment, and it allows us to walk with confidence in the Christian life as conquerors. How so? Well, if God's judicial love is the worst possible situation we could ever face, and we've been saved from it, then anything of lesser severity that we face in this life is nothing. It's nothing. We need not fear anything when the worst is over. We have been saved. God is for us. It doesn't matter who's against you. There's really nothing that can shake the Christian with this confidence. There is what is what is there that is worse than God's wrath? Nothing. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He puts it this way in Romans 8, 1 and verse 31, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God then is for us, who can be against us? Great rhetorical question. And you should bring it up to yourself and rehearse it whenever you need it. You can see how understanding God's saving love would motivate us to minister to the world in the most fearful situations with ease. Now, the other side of this truth is our love for God and neighbor that allows us to override any feelings that would prevent us from ever serving both, both God and neighbor. In other words, we can willingly put ourselves in situations that could be potentially harmful to us that we would otherwise fear and avoid because our love for God compels us to serve him and our neighbor. Christians love with a sacrificial self-denying love. They give them their lives in the service of Christ. They can do all things, therefore, for Christ's sake that they would never have considered before they were saved. A believer who has a fear of flying would gladly take a flight bound for an unreached people's group to preach the gospel if that was the only practical way of getting there. Why? His love for their souls and for God's ways overrides his fear of planes. Besides, he might reason, what is there to fear about planes? If I die in a plane crash, then that's God's decision and means to bring me home to him. Dying is gain, therefore nothing to fear here. As we heard read from our scripture reading this morning out of Matthew 5, a keen reminder that we do not love as the world loves, but as the Father in heaven loves. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourself to be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. This love, beloved, is a supernatural love. It is a spiritual love. It is therefore a superior love, a superlative love, a love that is perfect. And Jesus says in the next breath, You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word to us on this matter, one that is surely a confusing matter, 
in the world today. So many thoughts, so many attitudes and definitions that swirl about our heads and over the church. We pray that we would, we would turn a deaf ear to them and, and put our gaze where it belongs, and that is on special revelation, that we would run to your word to understand the meaning of biblical love and as we do, the way in which we are to love. And we pray, O oh God, that as we apply ourselves in aggressive and even violent ways uh, to, to ourselves in order to practice this great love with which you have loved us, we anticipate a great rejoicing, a great joy in our hearts as a result. We pray then, O oh God, you would find us loving this way, trusting your word for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.